we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So, Destin, I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. to live a long life, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now, I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land, I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We've been on break honoring the victims of the shootings that have happened to take a look at this country and all of those things. But tonight we return to the RP5 and the journey to injustice. We deal with federal indictments that come down. We want to take a look at the numbers and how easy it is to become indicted and absolutely without question, uh, we'll go to prison. We're gonna deal with all of that as we take off with the RB5 and the story of indictments coming down at an alarming rate. This is IDC Radio, we take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zapolo, Sampson Riddle, William Williams, Clinton Stewart, 
Dennis Merritt and Tanique Wright and the entire AJC radio team as we get ready for this journey to continue with the RP5 Injustice. Uh, and Dave Zapolo, let me come to you first. Uh, the importance of picking this story back up is important for one reason. The loose indictments that are coming down from the federal government, as they do, uh, are increasing at an alarming rate. Uh, in cases with no merit, in the case as it was with the RP5, how important it is to shine the light on the abuse of the federal government regarding these issues. It's, it's very important because when you look at it, the indictment is so easy to get. You have one side of the story being told to the grand jury, and that's the prosecution side. They don't even really have to show any evidence. In the second grand jury, in our case, an FBI agent went in there, talked. When the grand jury asked him if he had the evidence, he said, oh, I didn't bring it with me, and they indicted because all they heard was one side of the story. So when you see that things like that can happen, a grand jury is a joke. No, absolutely right. And I know we had met with some members of Congress um, during our time going up fighting for the RP5. Uh, a couple of members were, were very much against the grand jury system. Uh, they said it was a one-sided thing uh, and that it simply was unfair. Uh, but we still see the grand jury system in place as of today. Dennis, your thought. I agree that the, the grand jury, I really, if you look at it, when you only got one side of the story or you got one defense, you, you have no defense whatsoever, and the prosecutor pretty much is the referee or, or you know, he's in charge, it's just, it's, it's total injustice. And that's why so many times innocent people, you know, are indicted because they know they can get the indictment. I mean, they say you, you can indict a ham sandwich. I mean... That is so true. Tanique, your thoughts? Um, it just goes to show you that the system is corrupt from the start. This process starts the whole process, and it's broke. Then you go to trial, it's broke. Then you go to prison, and that system is broke. So the whole thing is broken, and it's always on the government side. No, absolutely right. David, your thoughts on this one? Well, um... There's just there's not a lot to be gained from a grand a grand jury system. Uh, the best justice in the world hardly. Um, they give broad discretion to prosecutors. Uh, give them the discretion not to present when they know it when they knowingly have exculpatory evidence that exonerates and that ends up in uh, all sorts of uh, constitutional violations. The prosecutors withhold evidence intentionally on a grand jury uh from what we've seen prosecutors i don't care what anybody says prosecutors in my opinion are not very honest people uh they're very biased uh they don't search for the truth they search for a conviction and to win a conviction with that sort of uh, ethos that is just embedded in our justice system there's no way you can get a fair shake in a grand jury absolutely right kendrick your thoughts uh, one of the big holes I think about grand jury is there's there's no law in there. They don't have to follow any laws. No one's making sure they're following the laws. Their their goal is to get in front of a jury and tell a story and say, does this look like something fishy? Because if you really had a case, if you really had a crime, why would you need a jury to hear all this evidence that you're putting out, your rendition, 
and ask them, does something look wrong here? Well, give me a right to indict. So it's it's never really intended to say, hey, let's let's follow the law and see if a law is broken. It's more of, hey, I got a story to tell. What does it look like to you? Yep. So it's, it's really, I don't know why it exists. I don't know why we still allow it to exist. It's just... It goes against everything that's on paper that uh, you would go as far as the, the criminal justice system. Again, we renamed that to the system, but it goes against everything because you have, you have both sides having an opportunity, supposed to, present their theory of the case and see where that weighs with the jury. Uh, in the regular court system, you have the, the prosecution, you have the defense that's able to present its case, supposedly. Uh, the grand jury, it goes against all of that. And so you have a prosecutor that's able to woo the grand jury, bring donuts and coffee in every morning as they are trying to convene and do what they need to do. Well, that's a, that's a matter of influence to the jury. And they're going to accept it because there has no opposition or counterattack to the nonsense that the prosecution of the government of the United States is actually involved in. That is unjust. And one final note, um, both the grand jury system and the jury system, I truly believe they're set up to provide absolution to prosecutors. They want to scapegoat. They always say, well, the grand jury indicted you. We did, I didn't indict you, so they absolve themselves of responsibility. Although they manipulate the process, and do all sorts of unethical uh, acts all the time, uh, even, with, even with the jury. Well, the jury goes into a black box. Well, the jury made the decision based on the evidence presented at trial. Uh, we know that's not the case. You're guilty to proven innocent, and there's prime examples of jurors saying they thought the person was guilty ever before hearing a shred of evidence, evidence. just because they were con uh, indicted. Absolutely right. Clint, your thoughts? I think the uh, grand jury uh, is a weaponization against the citizens of America. It was invented uh, for the Al Capones of the world, and it was kept on uh, a a as the big hammer in the drawer, the axe in the drawer, for the prosecution to weaponize against the ordinary citizens. And why we don't rise up and say, hey, thou shalt not have the grand jury, I don't know. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, just looking at trends over like the past few years, I mean, you see that the number of cases brought before a grand jury, the number of federal, federal indictments continues to climb while their conviction rate remains steady at around 98%. So, I mean, go, the indictment on, on most indictments. I mean, I'm just looking at an article right here back in um, March of 2022. So this year, 7,554 convictions in federal court for various charges those plea agreements as well uh, i think that's just a roundup of the figures uh it doesn't break them down as far as like what the yeah, plea outs were everything but i mean you, you got to think just compared to the month before it it's a 48 percent increase that is absolutely ridiculous so when somebody says yeah you can indict a ham sandwich that this isn't far from the truth that we're facing here and the fact of the matter is is they use and manipulate everything within their power so that they can get that conviction. It doesn't matter if it means taking away the defendant's um, resources, like what happened with the IRP-5, you know, where they they were basically blacklisted in the entire industry they were going into. The, you know, their, their business ventures were scuttled. I mean, a whole lot of things just so that they can win one single case, and it's ridiculous. Well, absolutely. William, final thoughts? You know, 
just real quick, uh, I was just reading this, and it said the prosecution uses the grand jury uh, proceedings as a test run for trial. And if you think about that, that that explains everything. You know, it's like a like a dry run. Can I put this out here? Put this crap together? Put it out here in front of these people, and they think I got something to take some people to trial. And the outcome of it is very real. But so, but you know, it's it's a dress rehearsal. So, you know, you th- you think about it through that lens and that perspective, you realize that it's just the tip of the iceberg for the show to come, because yeah. it's the show. No, absolutely right. And uh, on the other side of the break. We're going to address the RP5 story, uh, of course. Well, we're going to deal with the St. Louis alderman indicted for alleged bribery out of St. Louis. Uh, three African Americans were indicted. We're going to deal with that story as well. Uh, since two current St. Louis aldermen and one former alderman, including current president of the board of Alderman Lewis and Reed, were indicted on federal charges of bribery on May 25th. Um, we're going to deal with all of that. Again, African Americans stuck in. A bad situation. We're going to address that as well as, I don't know if you've heard this, celebrity news. Uh, Todd and Julie Chrisley found guilty of bank fraud and tax evasion. Questionable things there uh, that uh, we believe um, didn't add up. And when they've been indicted uh, and sentenced, I believe, to 30 years in federal prison. Uh, That'll be happening in October. They're on house arrest at the moment. I'm familiar with Todd uh, Chrisley as far as his show. Uh, Doesn't strike me as the type. And I'll tell you what, you have to second guess anything coming out the news about guilt or innocence because guess what? The federal government, we have lived that type of nonsense. And it would be hard for me to believe, I'd be hard-pressed to believe uh, that it is not happening on a consistent basis around this country. This is AJC Radio, the journey of the RP5 and federal indictments. We're going to deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you for not looking away and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there, the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked on. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun, blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle. Nine one one operator nine one. Where's the emergency? One twenty seven. Been there. Okay, what's going on there? I'd like to order a pizza for delivery. Ma'am, you've reached 911. This is an emergency line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom. Um, you know you've called 911. This is an emergency line. Do you know how long it'll be? Okay, ma'am. Is everything okay over there? Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Is there someone in the room with you? Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, um... It looks like I have an officer about a mile from your location. Are there any weapons in your house? No. 
Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, see you soon. Thank you. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. What's up? Do we have a gun? Why do you ask that, kiddo? Can I play with it? No, no, absolutely not. It's not a toy, you know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who get shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on the top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirts. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red laces, and the chest beside the bed? I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gifts? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. What about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I could use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. And what if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? Nobody. My gun. 
but it is our gun in our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. back ladies and gentlemen to AJC Radio tonight as we begin the journey back with the IRP5 I believe we are at the tri- the entrance David of the trial uh, we're going to be headed there uh, we wanted to give some statistics out a little bit Tanik you had some information uh, on now we're seeing today as I said let me, let me go over this story real quick two current St. Louis aldermen and one former alderman including current President of the Board of Alderman Lewis Reed were indicted on federal charges of bribery on May 25th. According to the indictment filed with the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Missouri, the three men allegedly accepted bribes from an unnamed businessman seeking to gain a property tax abatement, a minority business enterprise certification, the purchase of publicly owned commercial property, and municipal contracts from the city. A June 2nd press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Eastern District of Missouri states that two current and one former St. Louis aldermen, including Board President Lewis Reed, have been indicted on federal charges, uh, accusing them of misusing their offices on multiple occasions in multiple ways in exchange for cash, bribes, and other things of value. The charges contained in the indictment are merely accusations, and the defendants are presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty added the press release. Let me go ahead and stop right there. That last line is a complete joke. There is no presumption of innocence with an indictment. Period. Uh, And I don't know why they would want to add that language when their history, uh, their pattern of abuse, if you will, is clearly uh, as the RP5 case. The assumption of guilt was from the very first indictment. And it stayed throughout the entire trial because of the bias and the abuse carried out by federal judge Christine Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, and John Walsh. That's what it was. How do you want to come back and say the presumption of innocence? But, Tanik, you had some numbers on major companies, uh, billion-dollar organizations uh, that were ran, uh, in these cases, by Caucasian leadership. Correct. And not one, they were they were not indicted. They were charged, but nobody went to prison. Nobody went to prison behind yeah, it. Yeah, so everybody knows about Wells Fargo. Yeah. And they said that they opened 1.5 million checking accounts and savings accounts and then 500,000 credit cards in customers' names and knew nothing about it. So I will say that I had a bank, a personal bank, and I remember getting cards in the mail, and I said, I didn't open these accounts. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is an extra uh, checking account that you're going to have for this. And they opened it without my permission. And so that's fraud. You're opening an account without my permission. Um, And they said that they reached a settlement with the Department of Defense for $3 billion. billion. So, But why aren't you in prison? So you're putting black people in prison. 
but you're saying everybody else, oh, if you just pay us some some money, we'll look the other way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I didn't know this about ba- BAE Systems. They said that they uh, committed fraud and that they agreed again to pay $400 million to the U.S., $30 million to the U.K. after being convicted of felony conspiracy. So they were co- so, but no prison time. Correct. And then this last company called Columbia HCA Medicare, they said that they uh, were uh, charged with fraud um, in the way they, for Medicare fraud. And they said the CEO, which a lot of this came down from the CEO, was somebody named Rick Scott. And they said he ended up becoming the governor of Florida. So we reward you with a political position. But if you're black, we're going to send you to prison and you're not even guilty. So that's why I said the world is corrupt. So it's okay for this person to, an IRP5 didn't even do anything. Didn't do anything. And then these African-Americans in St. Louis says the... uh, they're talking about these are merely accusations, but we already know how that we've 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 heard that song before, uh, definitely with the RP five. But in the, in the indictment, the three aldermen John Collins, Muhammad Lewis Reed, and Jeffrey Boyd are in, to- are in total charged with seven counts related to two separate projects: a gas station being built and a commercial property being sold by the city. In their dealings with the unnamed businessmen, the three allegedly made profits in excess of fifty five thousand dollars are you kidding fifty five thousand dollars you gotta be kidding me right now but but martin look at the difference between the amount of money Mm -hmm. we talk with the caucasian Mm -hmm. people fifty five thousand dollars just say let's let's just say something was wrong it's fifth there's there's nothing there i don't believe there's anything is that a typo no, I saw that. I just pulled it up. That is the amount. So what they're basically saying, if you're black, you can't even have a dollar. $55,000? That's no money. That's no money. That's not even worth the court's time if you if there was something but there. But if, you, if you're black, we, this is another way. Uh, David always mentions the, the, the book, The New Jim Crow. These are the type. You can't legalize slavery, but there's another form by sending black men. Uh, head of households into prison for something stupid. Well, it says here the Department of Justice case states the anonymous man John Doe approached John Collins Muhammad, the former alderman, in order to solicit his assistance in obtaining property tax abatement for a gas station and a convenience store that he planned to build in Muhammad's ward. Muhammad is accused of allegedly agreeing to a 10-year abatement from 2021 to 2030 in exchange for thousands of dollars in bribes from John Doe. Uh, according to the indictment, Red allegedly received 2000 in cash upon agreeing to help John Doe obtain the cert- uh, certification. It was later alleged he paid 3500 in campaign contributions, as well as several thousand more dollars in cash for continued cooperation. The numbers are absolutely insane. It says here that the U.S. Attorney press release explains that Boyd and Reed's charges carry a potential penalty up to $250,000, uh, and each uh, five years, five and ten years in prison. I'm I'm blown away by the number. The number doesn't make any sense. Fifty five thousand dollars? Are you gotta be kidding me right here? And then you're talking about he was paid two thousand dollars. He was paid thirty five hundred dollars. I'm at a loss here. Anybody got a comment on that? And they was listening to them, you know, surveilling them for two years. And that's the only amount of money they came up with? Yep, they were surveilling them for two years. My, my question would be, what, what, what brought about the surveillance? 
What 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 I they had to they had to have something before they you would think before you know, they begin to surveil them. I don't think people understand prosecutors are in their world they're kings. Okay, and they're bought and paid for. If you piss somebody off in the system and they're a friend of the prosecutor, they can find a charge against you and they they, they look for something. In the book uh, Three Felonies a Day, um uh, uh, went to that issue that there are these broad, vague laws that prosecutors can spin into a crime just by looking at some of your most innocent behavior. And, and I'm not, uh, I don't know if these guys did what they said or not, but the reality is Tanique just uh, read how these big corporations defraud people for millions of dollars, never go to, never serve a day in prison time, but some black aldermen if, in fact, they, they did this uh, on a much lower scale, I said, uh, I said, yet yeah, the facts are still being developed. But if you think you can actually believe an indictment, we know the way these things are written. They are they are spun. They are outright lies and indictments. We saw it. And, and, and many times just a theory of the prosecutor in the indictment uh, backed up by very little evidence because it only has a, a low standard of, of probable cause. And in three felonies a day, the reality was, he said, each citizen can can wake up, go to work, come home, and they've committed three felonies uh, just b- based on the broad, vague law. So prosecutor can say, okay, I got the power. Uh, if I want to come after you, I want to select you because maybe a friend of mine wants me to come after you. I can just uh, peruse uh, the federal laws, uh, look at what you're doing, maybe look at your finances and say, okay, it looks like I can spin this into a case. And send you to prison. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty bad. And if you look at the the definition of what an alderman does, right? He's the one that is there at the city council, holding the budget in check, representing the people. So if you want to put him out of business, right? These are, this is a power move. You want to put him out of business. You want to teach the rest of the aldermen uh, a lesson. Go after a couple of aldermen and get them retired. Get them sent to jail. And you do what we say, not what you think is right. And, and so the alderman is a very, it's a low level, local uh, check and balance type position to keep things in check. But if you want to put that guy you know, out of commission and don't want any check, you want corruption to proceed, uh, you go after him with this uh, weaponized indictment. Well, hey, Clint, it, it sounds like we, uh, similarly to like what happened to y'all is like basically who's whose way were these gentlemen really standing in? Absolutely. You know, they were, they were standing in somebody a lot bigger's way and they just found a way to get them, you know, shut them up, get them put in prison, get them out the way. Again, same thing with my, my theory that goes back to, you know, the IRP five big tech companies could not produce with this small African-American owned company of, you know, executive men could come together and do and it irritated them to the point where they leveraged everything they could to get these gentlemen out of the way. Well, sorry to tell them, these guys are, they're here, they're free, they're out. I mean, yeah, they did eight years, but the fact is, they ain't going nowhere. They still got, they still have the product and nobody, I know, I've worked for TSA, I've worked for DHS. Those guys have tried to mimic the software that these guys have. And the fact matter is, they still don't have it after a decade later. That's what again. That's what happened. To these aldermen. They were standing in some big guy's way, and they they pulled they pulled something out from under the rugs. Oh, we're gonna sprinkle this fifty five thousand dollar thing over the head, fine them two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and give them some prison time. Yeah, that's unbelievable. 
I mean, the number. I mean, two thousand dollars. Right. Well, spend the, spend that. Most people spend that in their sleep. It's not even. I mean, rent is more than that. A rent payment is more than that. Um, for yep. somebody with a hidden agenda uh, to bring these African American, uh, in my opinion, gentlemen down, and you're not even talking. Well, and you have to look at it. you have to look at some of the, especially the mail and wire fraud statutes, which are uh, catch-alls. Everybody uses mail and wire, whether you're using the phone, email, or mailing something. All somebody has to get, get on there and say, uh, well, he lied to me about something, didn't pay me. Uh, he lied to me on the phone, said he was going to do that, um, and I gave him my money, and uh, he never he never paid me. So they can come up with a wire fraud case where you defrauded somebody over the phone. It's it's literally that simple to get a mail and wire fraud indictment uh, in many cases. Uh, and then the conspiracy laws, if if you if they can prove you were thinking about committing a crime and did, didn't and didn't uh, commit it, you can still get charged with conspiracy to uh, uh, commit mail, wire fraud or any other federal offense that, that carries a conspiracy uh, element. William, your thoughts? You know, you listen to this and it's it's. It's a joke, man. It really, it really is. I mean, David was talking about you talk about my wire mail fraud. I mean, that is a catch-all. That is a catch-all. It's like, okay, we're going to get. We were talking before the show here, the conspiracy. Kendrick was talking about if if that's what they have, conspiracy. You've conspired to commit this, and and these are just things. It's basically set up. The hand is tilted. Um, for the prosecution to, to win. That's all it is. I mean, if you if you look at this, everything is set up for them to win and for the defense to fail. That's what they have. And that's why this system is so I mean, it's a system of just corruption. I was under the impression uh everybody knows about uh, Todd and Julie Chrisley. Uh, found guilty of bank fraud, tax evasion. Um, I heard somewhere that they were going away for 30 years. That's the. I think up, they're facing up, the, to yeah, up to 30 years uh, because it says here the sentencing date has yet to be scheduled. Uh, they're free on bond right now, pending that um, uh, sentencing date, um, but they don't have a date even in place yet. So I, I thought yesterday uh, it. Because if you haven't been sentenced yet, there's a there's a range that they can sentence you to. What that range will be here, they, so they can face they're facing up to 30 years in federal prison. Um, a lot of stories, a lot of um, opinions here on this on the on the Chrisleys. I, I don't get it. They don't strike me to me personally. Um, you know, watching I've seen the show on a number of occasions. I followed it for a little while. It's reality TV, and, and uh, Kendrick, I think you were saying it just doesn't something that up here. No, no, no. The, the the first issue is, as they were brought forth, when your first charges are conspiracy, that means you don't have any direct evidence. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're trying to go to a jury and piece together non non uh, chronological or, or things that don't look relevant and try to make a story to say, well, first off. Everyone here agreed to do this. Now, once they make that story, 
then all of a sudden the counts so-called make sense now you've got counts actual counts of uh, mail fraud where if they couldn't prove the conspiracy case there were no counts so that's kind of the the the, the problem with the system so you're saying they conspire together with their accountant their accountant does their taxes but then you're charging the chrisleys with tax evasion which well why is the accountant getting charged with tax evasion yeah that that, that really doesn't stand the reason said he aided and abetted no so then you get him on the conspiracy to say well he didn't do anything but he conspired to do it with you that doesn't make sense it doesn't make any sense None. he did he do something or not uh uh dave well, if you look further into the story, you see that in 2019, the, de the Georgia Department of Revenue cleared the couple of tax evasion in Georgia. So why would you be evading taxes with the federal if government cleared. and not the state? Right. So it, it, a lot of it just does not make any sense. Yeah, I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that uh, uh, they were indicted in August 2019. A new indictment was filed on February of this year. It sounded like to me they wanted a second bite of the apple, went back. They didn't get what they wanted first. Uh, again, similarities to the RP5 case. Um, and, and you even see this here, that the Department of Revenue dropped two point. They said that they owed $2.1 million in taxes, and then they changed it to $110,000. How does that drop happen? How does that drop happen? They, they didn't have a, well, let, but let's, let's just give them a break type of attitude exactly the proof and evidence must have showed that it was nowhere near as exaggerated as these charges were this is why i'm telling you this is why people have no confidence whatsoever in the federal government yeah and nothing is how can you have in a criminal court of law if i win my case double jeopardy applies they can't come get you right again. but in a grand jury if the grand jury says we don't see a crime here you just convene another one you know that that's not fair. So if you if you if you got the jury and they said, well, we don't see a crime, oh, we just get another one, and tell them a different story. Should not be allowed. Should not be allowed. It's an abuse of the system, which the system is garbage uh, at its best. And I want to read a little something about the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, who's concerned about federal criminal conspiracy laws. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Pinkerton v. United States that a conspirator is criminally liable for the foreseeable, it's because he foresaw substantive crimes of his co-conspirators and further of the conspiracy, even if the conspirator himself played no part in the, in the offense and did not intend that it, it occurred. You can still be found guilty of conspiracy. Yeah, well, case in point, uh, we, we, were, we were incarcerated. It was a young gentleman who's part of a, uh, a drug case. And his only involvement was, is someone called him and said, hey, do you know if this individual sells drugs? He goes, I don't know. You got to go ask ask him he's in the conspiracy right that's crazy so he had no clue that there was drug he's just saying well i don't know you got to go ask him i heard he sells drugs i hang up the phone you're part of the conspiracy right and, and i saw that to kendrick's okay. point i we are being educated as we're walking through right this uh this this nightmare and to kendrick's point um I had another gentleman, what they do, and which is, is heinous, they'll take a cell phone from a drug dealer. Every <coughs> contact in there is on the indictment. And somebody said, hey, uh, hey, can you pick up a pizza or pick up my son? Well, the uh, overzealous uh, AUSA will say, oh, every person on this telephone or in, in this contact list will be indicted. And we've seen it. A hundred man indictment. That particular case was indictment. over a hundred because I knew some guys from that too. 
It is just it's, crazy. It's just ridiculous. You know, absolutely right. And as we're going here, I do want to extend an invitation uh, to these uh, three gentlemen who we talked about, the Alderman Indictment, um, to appear on this show to tell their story. Our team is going to be reaching out to them uh, to bring them uh, on the show. We believe uh, they have a right to be heard, just like anybody else that's been put in a situation. And I'm sorry, the reputation of the federal government uh, is garbage. I'm sorry to tell you. Absolutely. Uh, and here we got these these three African Americans. We are going to reach out to them, but they have an invitation to join us uh, on this show, and uh, we're going to do that. Uh, we got a note to our team right now, our research uh, folks. They're going to actually uh, reach out uh, and try to get a hold of these folks and let them know. Look, you're welcome here on AJC Radio to tell your story, because here's what happens in a lot of cases: uh, people are not allowed to tell their story. They just, they're silenced. People say, oh, my goodness, look what these people did. Without any facts to support it uh, in any way. Uh, but we're going to reach out to them and, and give them an opportunity to be on the show. That's that's the Lewis Reed, uh, as well as John Collins, uh, uh, Muhammad, uh, and uh, the board. Um, the gentleman, Reed, okay, yeah, and, and the board, uh, the guy head of the board, Jeffrey Boyd. We, our invitation is extended to them. And we're going to do, do our due diligence to reach out to, to you. Uh, if you are listening to this show, or folks that may know of these gentlemen, uh, let them know. AJC Radio welcomes them on this show. And, again, we will definitely reach out to them. We're going to take a quick break. Coming back as we get into the, the actual trial uh, of the IRP-5. That's after this. This is AJC Radio. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call or just calls today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. to the chain. It was just a joke. We're not friends. Why are you talking to me? He started it. She's so gross. Lame. Loser. Weirdo. I've said and done things before that I'm not proud of. Just as I've been hurt by others. The thing is, this, this is not who I am. And it's definitely not who I want to be. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to spread gossip. I don't want to be a body shamer. I don't want to exclude anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel lonely. Left out. Hurt. <laughs> 
we can create a kinder world. It's not that hard. We just need to stop. Take a moment and consider others before we speak. And before we act. Be more. Be more. Be more. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that it automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big Pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. How may I help you? My husband and I just got in a fight, and he hit me. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials has exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote and it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. 
If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't give justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Three men indicted in St. Louis. We give an invitation to again Lewis Reed, John Collins, Jeffrey Boyd with an indictment that is, in my opinion, highly questionable. Uh, we send an invitation for them to come on this show uh, to let their voice be heard and their story told. We will be reaching out to them, and I believe that process has already started uh, uh, during the break. So, again, uh, we're going to reach out and give them an opportunity to tell their story. Uh, there's always two sides to a story, and in most cases with African Americans and indictments and some others, uh, the indictment is a complete joke. Uh, you want to say, well, is that fair to make that assumption? Absolutely, because we've lived it. Uh, we were on the comic tour of the criminal justice system with the IRP-5. Uh, never seen ever something so ridiculous so heinous and egregious actions by a federal judge, a prosecutor, Matthew Kurtz, federal judge Christine Arguello, uh, and it, all parties involved. The story is going to unravel, and we're in the process of doing just that. Again, so we'll be reaching out uh, to these gentlemen uh, and let their story be heard, hopefully, heard rather, hopefully give them opportunity to appear on this show. Okay, so David, we are now at the entrance of the courtroom. Uh, and it is it is trial day. Is that correct? Yeah, we went through a couple of years of preliminary uh, hearings, and then, uh, and now you're getting ready to go to trial. Um, the case should have been dismissed. That was that was requested, obviously early on and after after the prosecutor ultimately put on the case. But uh, what transpired going in there and the collusion between the judge and the prosecutor let's put it this way that I don't care what anybody says about the system you can believe whatever you want to believe until you go through it we saw a concerted effort plan hatch and some of the most diabolical actions by a judge and a prosecutor that you can possibly imagine ultimately gaining the uh, the attention of a former federal judge who said it was the worst injustice he's seen in 60 years of practicing law. And don't forget the court reporter. I mean, everybody in that oh. courtroom is culpable. Yes, the court reporter. You find out when the transcript came up missing. And who was the uh, court reporter? Darlene Martinez. All right. And David, if you remember, not even the transcript. It was, if you remember... We didn't know what she was doing at first when she would say, uh, could you tell us who your witnesses are uh, in front of everybody? And so we're like, at first, like, why would we need to tell the court reporter our witness lineup? Not only that, we had, actually we had provided a witness list. Exactly. But she was asking us in front of the prosecutor. Uh, Judge Arguello was asking us in front of the prosecutor, what was our witnesses going to testify about? That actually happened 
Well, I said, so when we were arguing about it, we said, well, um, is it, it's not really fair for the prosecutor to be in to know what, so he can prepare for what, to what. To show your hand. Yeah. And we, we couldn't keep our cards close to the vest. Even that was one of the most corrupt acts that you can imagine. Even when we brought it up, said, no, he's going to stay in the courtroom and, and force us in front of the prosecutor. This is, this is a corrupt judge to, uh, tell, tell what our witnesses are actually going to testify about. That is utterly ridiculous because if you have an opportunity to game plan for witnesses, that's what the rule is in a proceeding is that you do not know the details of the witnesses on either side. The prosecution cannot know. The defense cannot know the prosecution's uh, witnesses. They uh, make that same offer to the prosecution to say, look, we need to know what your witnesses are going to testify. That is why Judge Arguello should be disbarred, period, and should be investigated for criminal charges. And I believe that's in the transcript, if I, I recall, that she's actually said that on the record. Well, and this then, is what happens. These judges, go ahead, Kendrick, I'm sorry. And I was saying that we had prepared, I mean, we stayed up late. We had prepared documents so we were ready for everything the government had. That's what you're supposed to do. But to make us basically as much as she could make us tell our strategy in front of the court was her job. It was just a tag team effort. Wherever she thought the government was lacking, she filled in the blanks and made sure the government got what they want. That's unbelievable. She did that because she knew we were inexperienced attorneys. We were representing ourselves. But let me tell you this. She knew she could get away with it. But here's the problem. Inexperienced or not, those are the basics of a proceeding. Right. You you do not, you cannot divulge the opposition's hand in a defense or the prosecution. Right. But in her, like you said, in her mind, well, you got these inexperienced guys, which uh, apparently you guys showed to be very experienced and should have won. Mm-hmm. That's how well you guys did. Uh, I don't know if she was intimidated that, wait a minute, these guys are coming out the gate with some with some firepower, and we, we got to do something to counter it. But to try to show the prosecution's hand and the fact that the prosecution, the government of the United States, remained silent, knowing exactly what the actions of the judge were and that they were out of line. Right. And we were watching them as she was doing, the, there's the prosecution just writing. The whole time, they were writing, taking notes, everything we were saying. So they knew what they were doing, and they, were, they took advantage of the fact that the court is ordering us to do this, and we're going to capitalize it. And we did such a good job at one point when we were pushing um, on the witnesses. The judge actually said, you don't need to go any further. You've impeached all of the government witnesses. Who said that? Christina Arguello. Right. So in our, in our minds, we're, we're right. saying we've won. Hey, we, you, said, you said we said something. You said we lied. We just proved in open court that you were lying, and we thought, hey, we looked around and said, hey, we, we've won this case. And well, to Christine, dishonorable Chris, uh, Christine Arguello's point, she wanted to make sure that Matthew Kirst got a victory. But here's the point on her statement. Did the jury, or was the jury aware of what it means to impeach a witness? I don't, I don't think jurors... Uh, but, but that is, and Dave, not to interrupt you, but that is what the judge is supposed to do. To impeach a witness right. means their credibility has been, has, is doubtful. So basically, they, they've got caught 
in lying. essence lying exactly. or contradicting themselves on something they said earlier and when you confronted them about it uh, they changed their story and in proceedings that's what it was important that the defense in cases impeached a witness because the and but the ju- the job of the judge is to tell the jury if i rule that a, that a witness has been impeached you you can set aside their testimony because it's it's doubtful questions have been raised that it can't be their testimony cannot, cannot necessarily be, be trusted true. they may not be credible thank you and that's and she never made that statement no no, no. no. The other thing that she did against us when we lined up witnesses and scheduled witnesses, coordinated with witnesses, this was very egregious. She would not enforce the subpoena of the court. Familiar with that. We we put a subpoena and and they send the subpoena to, to compel the witness to come. The witness didn't show up and coordinated with the court, not with us. As far as when they're going to show up and so forth, and she would not enforce those subpoenas. And we're going to get to that because that's further down uh, the road. Is that right? Is that further down? We've already entered in. Uh, We'll have to kind of go over the issues, the basic issues at trial. And we'll revisit that. Obviously, you can't recall uh, every chronological detail of the trial, but there are obviously major issues that need to be discussed and then once that once we discuss starting on those issues, all of the things that actually happen will actually come, come because right now if it's the, <laughs> we're dealing with trial, we're dealing with the jury selection. All right, we're gonna have to go down that road how the jury was selected, and then the actions of the prosecution, the actions of the government. What did they do at the beginning of this process, which we believe out of the gate they started to violate the rights of the RP five. Right and out of the gate. And keep in mind from, you have to understand, uh, we were defendants that were going pro se, representing ourselves, because our defense attorneys refused to put on a case of our innocence and put on a good defense. They all wanted us to take plea deals, which is how the system is is worked. One of the attorneys, well, I got to work with this. They did. Uh, one of the uh, attorneys said that. Um, well, he somebody said, well, he's lying. Well, we don't want to. We don't. The FBI agents are lying. Uh, well, we don't want to. We don't want to de- touch that. Who said that? That was my attorney. I he the what FBI agent was on the stand uh, during one of the hearings, and he was making a statement. And I said, wait a second, he's lying. Here's the proof right here. Oh, we don't want to mess with that. And then Judge Arguello actually said FBI agents don't lie. Right. Yes. In open court. In front of the jury? I don't know if it was in front of the jury. It might have been during a hearing. But she claimed that, F, uh, in other words, don't dare uh, call an FBI agent a liar. They don't lie. But I'm allowed to call an American citizen with no criminal record, with no issue of lying, I'm allowed, I'm allowed to allow the government of the United States to question their credibility as being honest or sincere people. But that's okay. Yes. But don't dare attack the institution. Well, she also said our character, when you tried to do an opening statement and describe who we were, your character's not on trial here. And that was uh, Matthew Kirsch objected because we wanted to introduce. These, these jury members know nothing about us, so we wanted to lay What's that to me? When you're dealing with an opening. Right. Was it an opening statement? Yes. yes. 
it is so unusual for an open, no matter how it sounds, prosecution or the defense, for an opening statement to be objected to. Well, that keep, doesn't happen. And keep in mind, defense attorneys tell who their client are, exactly. who their clients are in an opening statement. If we were actually defending ourselves, we had to tell who we were, but we were not allowed to do that. So the jury couldn't hear our backgrounds or nothing along those particular lines. And, and I don't care if we had military service, all this other type of stuff. She was doing, Judge Arguello was doing everything she could to make sure the jury maintained its bias because they're already uh, you're already guilty but to ensure the jury maintained their position that you're guilty by virtue of being here i, I believe if i remember correctly guys i think after the third one because i was maybe second or third we were not allowed to speak on our behalf to say this is the type of individual i was that that's correct and there were times that um the prosecution didn't even object she just stopped us you can't say that and she did, the, and that happened during closing statements too. So the closing statement and objection was raised. What was that objection? I don't remember. Do you, you guys remember vaguely remember in, in part? We would have to uh, uh, yeah, go to the transcripts and see some of the stuff that happened. And we'll, as we get into further into the trial and over the next week or two, we'll we'll try to dig into some of the opening and closing statements. It's, it's just it's it's highly unusual. Because the prosecution is allowed to paint any picture they want to paint. They can call you a monster. They can call you an animal. They can call you all of those things. A menace to society, they say. And there's no objection uh, raised because this is the theory of the prosecution. The theory of the defense is equally important when it comes to, as, as you guys said, cannot even speak to your character. Wait a minute. This is, these are the facts. Had a defense attorney been attached to it, I promise you no objection would have happened. It would have never happened because the defense wouldn't have put up with it. Uh, hey, Mont, on the, on, the, on the other side of that, what is the judge doing even speaking up for the prosecution? No business doing it. But, Samson, she did that. To Kendrick's point, he always said a judge is supposed to be a referee. Hey, can't do that. Can't. She was always coming to their – I mean, it was, it was almost like – is I, I mean we were kind of missed. Is this possible? But we we witnessed it. There there was one that really shocked me. I'll I'll never rem never forget. Sunita, we were questioning a witness, and Sunita Hazra stood up and went, "I object." Yeah. Sunita Hazra <laughs> was you a, ever, uh, Sunita Hazra was another assistant U.S. attorney on the case. And then she couldn't think of what the objection was, and the judge told her, "Don't you mean you object to this?" Oh, yes, that's right, Judge. The, and the judge, judge advised her yes. of the objection? That is yes. correct. Real time. Yes. Well, the, now, the judge started doing her case for her. That's right. What that's but, absolutely out of order in any type of proceeding here. This judge. So you're testifying. You're objecting for the prosecution, the judge. Right. She was basically their co-counsel. Just she was up on the bench. Right. But if you guys remember, remember the day when she had made the statement, I will rest your case. Remember after lunch, Kirsch uh, and uh, AUSA Kirsch was actually advising her on the on the flip side of saying, Judge, I think you want to do it. So again, everyone was co-conspirating right. against us because we knew it. And when we when she made that statement, we if we I, I remember looking at Kirsch's face, it was like, uh oh. And then at, when we came back from lunch, everything was everything was fixed. 
I don't remember my exact words. It was uh, Ar- Ar- Arguello said. I don't remember my exact. I don't believe it. I said it like that. And right. that's when we demanded. He was trying it. to keep her out of right. trouble. And I, I, I want to give a little background uh, for people who may be listening. Our company, that our conduct they claim was criminal, was developing innovative, criminal, uh, revolutionary criminal investigation software for law enforcement at state, local, and federal level. And the government claimed that the work uh, that staffing companies, uh, resources that staffing companies provided, but that we duped them into doing business with us by claiming uh, that we lied to them and said we uh, had a current or impending contract with a large federal government agency. Uh, this, Based on this premise... Uh, there's no way you can say a company who extends credit extended you credit based on the fact that you told the company a lie that you had a large government contract, and they didn't. Con- uh, and obviously, they didn't conduct any due diligence to do that. They never said, and that was proven in court. But companies don't extend credit based on statements just raw statements they do credit checks and background checks and credit report uh, pulls and things of that nature so uh, this prompted federal this prompted a uh, federal judge H. Lee Sarakin to say after his review of the of the trial transcripts that we were indicted prosecuted and convicting for failing to pay corporate debts to staffing companies this is what this case was about. And then all of the shenanigans that went on during trial and all the corrupt acts all the way up to the appellate court. And we're going to be getting into some more of those details. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm speechless. Because here we go. And nothing was done. Nothing was done. This judge recklessly with the intent to be reckless, to ensure not a fair trial, not a fair case for these guys. It is unbelievable that the case, at least at the appellate level, would have been gone through with a fine-tooth comb to show the conduct of this judge. But when you see what the appellate court done, it is going to blow your mind when we get to it. And there were also things David filed in regards to uh, the Judicial Council. Was it the Judicial Council in D.C.? Yeah, it's uh, if you file a judicial complaint. Uh, judicial complaints were filed on some of these egregious breaking of laws and the Constitution. This was not questioning a judge, judge's ruling. These were outright violations of law that were on the record Uh and the Judicial Council and the process for judicial complaints is a complete joke. Almost 100% of all complaints never go anywhere when a uh, defendant complains about a judge. Never. That's unbelievable. I am, I am absolutely uh, stunned uh, that this type of behavior... And we've heard it. We've, we've, this is the first time we've reported this story. But every time you hear it, did that really happen? Yes. And for it to be gone, uh, for it to be gone silent, 
uh, and people are not actually holding this judge accountable. It, it shows you the condition, as we said before, of the system. This is the system at its finest. It's, it's at its finest moment of corruption. That's what it is. Right. And when you have these guys, as you replay this nightmare, this happened in a courtroom that we call the greatest system in the world. I don't call it that. But the majority of people think, oh, we have the greatest system in the world. Walk in our shoes. You do not have the greatest. It is the worst system that I've ever laid eyes on because they hide behind a black robe. They hide behind Lady Justice as if this is a just and fair nation. It is not. <coughs> We're in a fairy tale somewhere. It is not. What is that something people just don't want to deal with? Wait till injustice visits your front door. You have a different opinion. That's right. This is an outrage. This is an outrage. And politically, people just hide behind the door. Oh, we better leave that alone. No, we better mess with that. No, this is a federal judge. Federal judge, state judge, prosecutor, no matter who you are, you took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and you cannot even begin to do that when you blatantly violate the rights of these men of the RP5 and thousands of others that we don't even know about. So you end up with frivolous uh, indictments. It's all about a machine that's running on a fast track to destruction. That's what this criminal justice is. This system, excuse me, it's not a criminal justice system. It's to take justice out. The criminal system. And it's called that for one reason. The officers of the court, the judges, the prosecutors are as guilty, if not more guilty, than those they attempt to prosecute. A, uh, a good federal judge, an honest federal judge, an honest federal prosecutor is the exception. It is not the rule. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not going to paint everybody with a broad brush, but the reality is these people have a certain ethos that they possess to win a conviction at any cost and bring a prosecution and an indictment. Uh, they bring plenty of frivolous indictments because of the vague uh, laws. They can just do whatever they want to do. And that is the, that's what Americans need to realize. Good judges and prosecutors are the exception. I'm sure all of the prosecutors and judges who work in the system would vehemently uh, disagree because uh, they, they always are going to uh, pat themselves on the back, jump on a soapbox and say, we're good people. We're here trying to defend and, and keep America safe from these uh from these, from these criminals, this is the way they're going to sell it. That's oh. the party line. But the reality is, good judges and prosecutors are the exception, not the rule. Well, I can tell you, the soapbox they're jumping on has disintegrated. You're liable to fall through that one because it don't exist. You don't have a soapbox. Not with corruption and lies. You don't have a right to speak out because everything coming out your mouth is loaded. And it was that way in the IRP-5 case. It's that way in many, many cases in this country. Uh, we deal with federal judge Christine Arguello. Uh, I don't care if she's retired, if she's retiring. She should be held accountable for this conduct that affected the lives of the IRP-5.
and who else knows who else has been affected by this judge. This is AJC Radio. We're coming back after the break. The injustice, the journey to the steps of the RP5. Here we go. We'll be right back. Get in and talk about it. I've got to go home. Oh, come on, Carrie. We're going to a new place. She wants to go home, right? <laughs> Let's go. Whoa. You okay to drive? Yeah, I'm fine. You sure? Relax. What's a few beers? If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. messages about women and violence. I need a little clarification. Uncle Bill, how am I supposed to grow up to respect women when I have such lousy role models? Boys are never going to approach you. Can you help me reshape my attitudes towards women? You need to teach them that violence against women is wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm gonna give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252 that is a just cause, and we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Look, right now, uh, while you're looking at this on your screen in your hand or on your computer, there's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell. And they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught. And they can never get uncaught. The United States of America is now the number one incarcerator of human beings in the world, in the history of the world. Uh, we have about 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, we, are, we have more people locked up than China. China, who has a billion people, they got fewer prisoners than we do. You know, a lot of times people say, well, if you don't wanna do the time, don't do the crime. Really? Have, have you ever committed a crime? 
You got people who are doing more drugs in on college campuses, in uh, uh, yacht clubs, country clubs. We all know that's going on, but the SWAT team never shows up there. The SWAT team shows up in the housing projects where you got poorer people doing fewer drugs and those people go to prison. But think about it, what if one of the times when you were breaking the law, when you had something illegal in your pocket, in your car, at your party, the police had kicked in those doors, would you want to be known for the rest of your life based on what happened that night? That is what is happening to millions of people. If rich folks' kids get in trouble, they go to rehab. Poor folks' kids get in trouble, they go to prison. And you spend $100,000 per year per kid to lock a kid up. When you could have spent a fraction of that and turned them into a NASA scientist, turned them into a, a, a fashion icon. When people come home from prison, they're not given the opportunity to start over. You leave a physical prison and you go into a social prison where you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't rent an, rent an apartment. How are people supposed to start over? And what happens to neighborhoods when you take a disproportionate number of people out for minor offenses and you send them back home with no hope and no opportunity? There are no more excuses to have this horrible system continue when there is now finally bipartisan agreement that it is a tragedy to do this. Not only do you have President Obama and the Democrats, you now actually have uh, people like Paul Ryan, Koch Industries, Newt Gingrich, all saying the same thing. We are locking up too many people, we're wasting too much money, we're, we're wasting too much genius in America, and it's time to do something. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime, it's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Picture this, a 75-year-old man convicted of murder waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life have been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you think, but you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. You can feel free to dial in 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628, as we continue the journey of the IRP-5. Uh, and right now, we're at the front door or the court steps, if you will, of the federal courthouse in Denver, Colorado. 
as these five men walk in in the fight of their lives and with everything against them, including a corrupt system, uh, a corrupt process, and a violation of due process by this federal judge, Christina Goel, and the governor of the United States, John Walsh, Matthew Kirsch. I think it was another lady they said there was a, at the table for the prosecution. Who was that? Sunita Hajra. Okay, so these three folks uh, set out on a mission uh, to violate any oath taken uh, to ensure justice and to uphold the Constitution of the United States. So uh, we're going to go into the courtroom now as this process has began. Uh, and David, I'll let you lead us off. We're going to go around to all of you guys uh, and get your thoughts as you entered that courtroom, uh, believing that you did nothing wrong and you guys would come out victorious. Is that because that's what you believed? You know, I believe that's what we knew. That's what you knew to be the facts. Mm -hmm. Tell us, we'll start with you, David. Tell us your thoughts when you walked in that courtroom. Well, first off, the indictment was obviously shocking. And then now it's, it's been two years. Uh, preliminary uh, hearings and uh, continuances and stuff of that nature. Um, now we're finally headed into court. We've done our preparation, uh, view discovery after firing our attorneys. And now it's uh, time. Our strategy was uh, up front was to go in and say, look, uh, obviously there was no crime here. We had debt that was not paid. Uh, and according, even according to the the elements of the crime uh, there's no way anybody was defrauded here uh, even if the government said if the government claimed that uh, the government statements were true that we had claimed that we had a current or impending contract and in some cases we did even if that was the case there wasn't a, a justification for any sort of crime here so we enter the courtroom, and obviously we start with our opening statements, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll we'll start there. And as as pro se defendants, defendants who are defending themselves, we have to get up and make an opening statement about the case, about ourselves, and, and what was actually going on, and what we were going to prove. Uh, but real quickly, as as we discussed briefly uh, before uh, this segment. Uh, the judge put a kibosh on us uh, stating or making our opening statement. So it, it, there was a constant interference. Uh, and all I can say, in my opinion, is illegal in, in, interference uh, into us presenting our defense. And that, that as, as we go through this, you'll find out there was constant efforts and actions by both the prosecutor and the judge to thwart us from putting on our defense. And uh, and it started with the opening statement by saying that our character was not on trial here. Uh, and we couldn't say, I uh, give our background and all this other type stuff. And I've been in, in trials before. All defense attorneys talk about their client, uh, who they are and stuff like that uh, and during their opening statement. But we were not allowed to do that. So I'll let the other guys chime in on, on just even that shocking thing to and that interference at the very beginning set the tone for the entire trial. Demetrius. Uh, one of the things as David was talking, uh, even I think the week before we started trial, we did uh, voir dire. 
And one of the things that kind of rings even to this day, one of the ladies that was a potential jurist said, if the government brings a case, they must be guilty. And that just sets the tone to where uh, many of the jurors that were picked for this trial, their mindset. And the, and the prosecution knows this. Who made that statement? One of the potential jurors. But she's, she, I think some, uh, some of them was were, she had dismissed? I, I think she was. I recall. That one may have been dismissed. But but, I, but the point I'm making is to saying that that statement in, in, this, in this system rings true. And it was for our case because when David said we, we weren't allowed to put on, I think we had 11 pieces of evidence compared to 200 plus with the, the prosecution. So every time we wanted to refute something, and even when David would uh, impeach a witness, we wanted to, uh, we would move to have that entered into evidence. No, she struck that down as well. Well, did she make the statement that the witness had been impeached? She did at one point, because she knew, we, and the prosecutor knew we were impeaching their witnesses. Right. Because in essence, what was happening through our defense is that these witnesses, the, the government's witnesses had told the prosecutor in writing, and these were a matter of FBI reports of what they had told the prosecutor, which was in direct contradiction to the charges that the prosecutor was bringing forward and evidence he was trying to present at trial. So from that perspective, uh, the FBI report should have went into evidence along with uh, what the FBI reported, uh, along with the, the evidence of what they sent the FBI and their affidavits to the FBI of what they uh, of what they said, none of that was allowed to go in before the jury. Kendrick, well, my thoughts were, I was almost like I didn't believe we would get to this far. I mean, we had so much evidence showing that there was not not even a crime. We've had we had several other attorneys even look at the indictment prior to trial. They couldn't even figure out well, what actually are they charging you guys with. It, it was so confusing. You couldn't even determine, well, what did you do from reading an indictment? Then when you get in the trial, their opening statement has nothing to do with the indictment. He says our, the army, we came in to get free labor. So you're saying we defrauded all of these staffing agencies, but then when you get in court, you say we were trying to get free labor. So because he had to admit, how do you have a crime if nobody made out with any money? Because the vast majority of all the so-called money that was defrauded went to employees that weren't on trial. So none of this makes sense. So we were always thinking, like, how did, how did, how can they justify bringing this to in front of a jury when there's no evidence? How can you justify that in a hearing prior, you, the judge herself says there's not enough evidence to indict Dave Zappolo and myself and that you need to prove that they need to still be in the indictment. Well, they didn't supply any new information. Just have the FBI agent get up and testify, regurgitate the same thing, and then all of a sudden it's clear that, oh, there's a trial. So it just you started seeing, okay, the fix is on, and you were hoping maybe we can get a break in here because we never got it. One ruling from the hearings up until the beginning of the trial in our favor. Not one. We didn't go to trial until two years after indictment. So no speedy trial guarantee for us, not one. So you kind of realize, yeah, you, you're starting to smell a rat as you get to that point. Mm -hmm. Dave, And Kendrick has a good point. You start to smell a rat. Well, we were pro se, 
the judge kept trying to push advisory council on us. So the person, and I, I remember looking at this, the person that she tried to push on me, when I looked him up, he actually worked for one of the law firms that had been coming against us. So it's like, well, how is there not a conflict of interest here? Nope, they were trying to get all the information they could on what our defense was so that it could be leaked to the prosecution and they would be prepared for anything we threw at them. Yeah, it was uh, just really a house of cards and a kangaroo court. It was really crazy. But I want to go back to something David said earlier. He was talking about their theory of the crime, you know, that um, we duped staffing companies and said we had an impending contract and that we owed debt that we didn't intend to pay. Well, when we looked at the... um, and this was the fifth theory that they had on a crime. So they really didn't have, uh, I mean, they, they kept changing their story to, to you know, when, when that evidence fell through, they kept, they kept changing the story. It was the fifth time they changed the story. But the point I wanted to bring out was, is that uh, we found out that for four years, for, since 2002, and this thing didn't go to trial until 2000, uh, 2009 we started start starting the trials I believe it was it was uh well we got indicted in 2009 but anyway since 2002 they had been fought the FBI had been following us around and telling all our prospects don't do business with them well you're 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 perpetuating a a, uh, a prophecy uh, you you indicted us for being fraud not paying the bills but now you you prevent us from getting any business so that we can earn the money to be able to pay the bills. So you, you've indicted us, and now you're making sure that we can't pay the bills, and you're indicted us for not paying bills. So this is the way that they, the tactics that they use, and we found this out uh, during the trial. We, we, we definitely knew that it was a crazy situation. And, that, and for that reason, Clint, they have to have loss. So for fraud, you have to defraud somebody out of their money. Right. So if everybody's paid, and so we have to make sure you guys don't make money because wow. we brought this fraudulent case uh, so we can spin the fact that you created debt right. into a crime. Right. And this is well, this had to be a scheme because you guys didn't pay anybody for any of this stuff. So without them going uh, behind our backs and undermining our ability to uh, gain more revenue to pay bills, they had to do it, or or, or, or the case, uh, the, their charade. frivolous case. Yeah, the whole charade would, would come would come tumbling down like like a like a deck of cards. Yeah, and they pulled out the the element of intent. The judge said, yeah, that's "We're true. not going to allow that to be considered intent." How's that even? But fraud has a integral piece that you intended to do this and defrauded somebody to steal their money. Well, if you if you de- negate that as the judge to define don't don't define intent into the law, it's absolutely crazy. And then when you when you look at that, that's where when we were doing our closing arguments, we were trying to bring up the fact that fraud had intent in it, and she kept stopping us from saying that. That's just automatic. They don't the ju- the jury doesn't need to know. Well, that. it's so. it's a it's a one of the elements. Critical element that they have to prove, but we wanted to make sure that if we reinforce that 
in the jury instructions that, and it's not uncommon, the judge to be able to explain intent and give them this particular instruction so the jury understands intent. She did not want any sort of clarity clarity on intent provided to the jury uh, so she can ensure that the jury would be confused or uh, or just not not clear on on, on what the uh, the meaning of the law yeah and and the elements that, that had to be proven by the prosecutor right and, and even to the point to that point on intent one of the the key things for the prosecution was again they never intended to pay so when we tried to refute that with evidence mm-hmm. stating that to david's point we even tried to bring in stuff at 2009 with philly she got very angry no we this we will not allow i mean she because i remember i was like well if you said we never intended we're giving proof that we did based off of this correspondence with uh the city of philadelphia that David was uh, running point with to bring that to the jury to say no, we intended to pay based off of these. We she would not allow that evidence to be in our favor to show that we did intend to pay several years later. So what did she say when Philadelphia came up? Well, she claimed that because the government had 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 alleged that the crime occurred between two thousand. Two or 2003 to 2005 that that was not relevant relevant evidence but there was also uh evidence linking and tying that that there was prior evidence and all that would approve from 2003 all the way to 2009 the same type of uh business opportunities existed as did uh in 2009 it existed earlier as well yeah it showed our method of operation how, how we did business well, listen to this. So the judge would not allow, Judge Christina Arguello, did not allow the element of intent. Is that correct? Right. No, I, you can't say she didn't allow it. She wouldn't allow the jury instruction. Intent is a part of the elements that's talked about in the actual statute. So what did she not allow the jury to hear? Well, we requested a specific jury instruction. What happens at trials is... Everybody has to agree on jury instructions, and the judge has to approve of the jury instructions. We simply requested a particular fraud statute or fraud jury or intent jury instruction element that had been used in other cases and say, can you provide, can we use this to ensure the jury understands the importance and what intent really is? And her response was what? No, it's in the statute. Uh, I don't feel any need to provide any clarification. The reason that's garbage... Because the definition of fraud is this, wrongful or criminal deception intended to result in financial or personal gain. In law, fraud is intentional deception. Right. So a jury at the end of the day, the only thing you guys ask is to make sure that the jury understood intent. But every time you guys want to speak to your intentions, right, which was to build a product, right. To keep America safe, oh, we're not going to allow that. You're not going to talk about that. Philadelphia was a clear example of what intent was. Exactly. The intent was to do business with Philadelphia. To pay our... And we had witnesses from law enforcement that uh, was testifying that we met with them about our software. And I'm going to read something in, in a little while from Judge Sarakin that describes just that, uh, the intent element, 
and why the case was brought in the first place. Uh, and, and we'll discuss that. And this is the, the former federal judge, H. Lee Sarakin, federal appeals judge, who reviewed the case and, and took uh, great issue with how the case was brought, prosecuted, and that we were innocent. Um, that, uh, <laughs> that intent thing is pretty thick. Yeah, yeah. That's what? Pre- because... If the RP5 have the opportunity to paint a picture to the jury from the day y'all were at ground zero, take this jury on a journey. That's all intent. The intention from ground zero to the endless nights and hours of work speaks to intent. Right. Intent, intent, intent intent. Right. It should have been allowed for the jury to hear that from the defense. This was our intention. Let me lay out a, a timeline of what that intention was. Because you know what? The jury would have went to ground zero with you. Right. Because it shook the nation. They could relate to the fact that these men were at ground zero. They saw devastation that had never been seen in this country. And collectively came together and their intent began to lay itself out. That is why Judge Arguelle didn't allow intent. She didn't allow it because if intent is in the statute, then I have no problem allowing anyone to speak to intent. If it's it's in front of them as a, the definition of fraud is the intent to defraud and to deceive. I have a right as the defense to show you just how much we did not intend to do that. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. That's why her behavior, she tried to hide behind, well, no, they already have this. That is a calculated move to keep due process to be carried out in the case of the RP5. William. You know, um, as you as you guys are talking, I'm sitting here thinking about this. Number one, she didn't allow you to establish character. That was the first thing. Uh, your character, then she doesn't allow to establish intent. And then I'm thinking of the last piece, which we we will talk about later. She didn't allow to establish uh, current business practices or behavior. So now once you, once you, you take these three things and you take them, you throw them out to a jury that's totally unfamiliar with you, your character, the intent of the business or how the business works, the software consulting, if you think about that, these guys were blind. So as you guys were talking, this is running through my mind. And I remember talking to the uh, the juror post, you know, post trial. And he said, we were wondering where the defense was. And I mean, this is the jury. And I, I, we, we've talked about this several times. He said, I was, we were wondering where is the defense? Because that's when they came back and asked, is there more information? In the pocket of the judge. Yeah, it was everything. All this is just, just hid. Because you don't, if you think about it, these guys had no clue. They had no clue about who you were, the intent of the, of the software, or the purpose of the organization, the company, or anything about software consulting. Let's hear from Jake actually Sarah can uh, he did an interview with us uh, about the RP case. Let's get a little listen from Honorable Judge actually Sarah. 
I think an appellate court would do one of two things. They'd either order that the transcript be produced uh, or they'd have to reverse. You know, it would baffles me as to why anyone would deny that motion. Uh, it's inconceivable to me that a judge would say, no, you can't have the record of this trial. It's inconceivable to me in this day and age in the federal court, particularly in Colorado, by the way, which I think has sort of advanced when it comes to computers, that they don't have an alternate way uh, to maintain the, the record. And uh, the fact that the court reporter doesn't have it or hasn't typed it up, um, as everybody says, is inconceivable. So there's... This record exists somewhere, uh, yes. and, and for some reason, the, they're resisting producing it, uh, I think, is a fair inference. And that's why that particular segment of the testimony of the transcript is so important, because if, if that weren't the contention and there's something missing, appellate court is liable to say, well, unless there's some prejudicial error involved, what difference does it make? But this is so critical that that's why they want it, and that's what the big fuss is about, and legitimately so. Well, there you have it. Actually, Sarah can, federal, honorable actually, Sarah can, let me not leave that out. A judge who decided to look into the matter of the RP5 case, he says it's inconceivable. Uh, it made me think for a moment of the definition of inconceivable. It means not capable of being imagined or grasped mentally unbelievable. This from a federal judge who says this is unimaginable, that this piece of conduct by this judge it's unimaginable, it's unbelievable, it's not capable of being imagined. This is a federal judge who was in the, in, in the legal world, I believe for over 60 years. If a federal judge looked at this case and came up with this, the adjective of inconceivable being again, not capable of being imagined or grasped mentally, unbelievable it seemed inconceivable that this thing could happen this is from a judge experienced on the bench for several and for more than decades how is that and how is it no one else is seeing that but a judge actually Sarakin saw it and he continued to use the word inconceivable you can't even imagine it. That should speak to the magnitude of what happened to the RP5 here in this case. Dave Sapolo, go ahead. But when you look at all of that, and then when we try to bring an expert witness to testify and show that our business practices did not match the level that the government was saying was illegal, that this was standard business practices, she allowed the person to get on the stand, state his name, allowed the prosecution to object, and then took him off the stand. And this was the expert witness, this, which was uh, Andrew Everelli? Correct. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Again, 
I'm I'm floored with the words of H. Lee Serkin, fellow judge H. Lee Serkin. I'm floored. There's very few things, and and H, uh, Judge H. Lee Serkin has seen some things over the years, including and up to the Hurricane Carter reversal. For him to use the language that he just used in the case of the RP5 should carry tons of weight. Should carry tons of weight. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, we've heard about it, you know, all the details. I mean, it's a fix from the start. You Again, you have a judge, 60 years of law. This man has seen the law change and evolve from back in the, the original Jim Crow era to now the current Jim Crow era. He's seen travesty after travesty. He even told the guys, he said, if I find one thing wrong in your case, I'm done. All that experience poured over their case, probably day after day looking for, I mean, any shred of evidence, any detail that he could find that the prosecution might use. When he came back to these guys and said, there's nothing wrong, there's no crime, why did his opinion not matter to Judge Christine Arguello, to anybody else that was a part of this prosecution team? The fact of the matter is, is like they said, it was a wrap. It was set. It was set in their mind what, their ver what the verdict was already going to be. And then it was just a matter of just executing their plan. It didn't matter that, you know, five executive men's lives were on the line or what happened to their families. None of that was even considered. What they could do for this nation with that software wasn't even considered. The fact of the matter is, we have an agenda and we have to execute it. And they all played their part and parcel. Well, that shows you why we call it the system. Justice? What does justice come into play here? I'm going to take a quick break. We're coming back with the closing segment. Tonight, the RP5 journey. Unbelievable, inconceivable are the words of Federal Judge H. Lee Sarakin. Unimaginable. Cannot even wrap your hands around it. And that's giving it a very low explanation. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders, 
30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? 
Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Ladies and gentlemen of America, tonight we leave this show troubled again by the conduct and egregious actions in the RP5 case. No matter how many times we have told this story, it appears, as Judge Serkin said, inconceivable. You just cannot believe such actions and attitudes happen. And during the break, I was, it was shared with me a statement that Judge Arguello made to David Banks, I believe at sentencing. You'll be young when you get out. You'll still be young. After an 11-year sentence. After an 11 Imposing years. an 11-year sentence. The reality is, federal judge Arguello is not connected to reality. She's depraved. Absolutely. And David, we got a few minutes. I know you wanted to share something um, with, uh, concerned H. Lee Sarakir. And uh, you mentioned, Lamont, that the term inconceivable. And let me read a little bit of what Judge Sarakin wrote. Although the primary charge was that the defendants had misrepresented their success and prospects to certain staffing companies, the case was presented to the jury on the basis that the software program developed by the IRP6 was a phony and a scam. The defendants had formed the software company to develop a program to aid law enforcement in sharing information. They worked for years on the project, spent their time and money, entered into a substantial lease, hired former law enforcement personnel to work on the project, engaged law firms, and traveled the country demonstrating the program to potential customers such as Homeland Security, the FBI, and New York Police Department. Uh, that is what, why Judge Sarakin said this case was inconceivable. Nobody committing a crime hires law enforcement personnel during the course of committing a crime and involves them in essence in their that conspiracy to uh commit the crime um sarah can also said a former assistant u.s attorney sent a letter to the current u.s attorney we're talking about greg goldberg uh claiming that these individuals had committed fraud so he, and had lied about their prospects of staffing companies a claim consistently denied uh, and whom the letter writer represented uh, was not disclosed. He also mentioned that the raid made it impossible for us to uh, continue to fulfill our obligations. Not only that, but uh, but that their interference also in our business activities, the scuttle of our business, uh, made it impossible for us to make money. And finally. Uh, that the FBI 
who received a complaint from a staffing company in Denver told the staffing company that this was a civil and not a criminal matter. The, all these are facts in this case and a matter of, of documented facts, but yet the FBI and the U.S. Attorney still pursued this case uh, maliciously to uh, convict and imprison us. And thus the definition of the statement by Judge H. Lee Serkin, inconceivable. How does that happen? How does it happen? Uh, it is our job as advocates to bring out the facts of this case and many others that have suffered injustice at the hand, not only of federal judge Christina Aguayo, of judges all over this country. And we say this in closing, there are good judges out there. I believe there to be decent prosecutors out there. The, the big challenge is how far in between are those judges and prosecutors? And how many acts of injustice happen that can clearly blind the vision of those seeking justice and believing that justice could even ever be found? Till next time, America, next week we continue this journey, though difficult at best, to believe such actions, such cruelty, would be sanctioned in the courts of this country. It is a tragedy, a true tragedy. Join us next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Mountain. We continue to search for justice for the RP5. This is AGC Radio signing off. Good night.